Daniel chapter one. Father, this day, we're glad to be your kids. We're glad that we can pray to you, that we can ask for our daily bread, that we can ask that you lead us not into temptation, but you deliver us from evil. That we can choose to forgive as we've been forgiven. To know that your kingdom and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask for that even this day. That your will would be happening in our lives. That we would not fight against it. We wouldn't kick against the goads but we would be sheep who hear our Savior's voice and follow that voice because we know it always ends in green pastures and still waters because you are the good shepherd. So tonight in Daniel, we ask that you would shepherd our hearts, that if we have been wandering which we're prone to do. Your voice through Daniel would call us back to righteousness, to peace, to joy. Those are the things of the kingdom. And so may we hear you and may we be wise people who take what you say to us and apply it and live it that we are building on that rock solid foundation that no storm can take out because we hear and we obey. So tonight, shepherd us and may we follow your voice. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, a few years ago, probably five, uh, we took a family vacation down to Cardiff by the sea. Anyone ever been there? It's just like epic. So my kids are Southern Oregon kids and we get down there and we're hanging out at the beach and it's like every car is a Ferrari or a Tesla or a Bugatti or a Porsche, right? And at the beginning, my kids are like, dad, Ferrari, dad, Bugatti, dad, Porsche. And after a while, we're just like, big whoop. I'm like, whoa, a Ford Fiesta, man. How awesome is that, <laughs> right? And I thought I'm sitting there in Southern California and it's sunny, it was in January. It's beautiful, it's warm, there's money, there's food, there's entertainment, everybody's fit. You know, they're all jogging around. They all look like they're celebrities. And I thought, this is a seductive environment. Like you could see this thing just grabbing a person's heart and you just live for that kind of a lifestyle. Like, mm, it could shape you really quickly into its image. Like people that have never gone to the gym. Like gym to them is a person's name. Yeah, I like gym. They get down there and they're like, they live at the gym because it's just this culture of, you know, athletics and be in this, you know, certain kind of fit perspective that you're seeing all the time. Like it's a powerful force. And we've all had friends or maybe relatives that have moved somewhere that has that kind of pressure and they come back to visit and they've been changed by it. It's molded them into its image because that's just what culture does. So now we have this guy named Daniel and he is a young man who is in that kind of a culture. And so as we study this book, there are these questions that you should be keeping in your mind and asking yourself and thinking through because it's the questions Daniel is gonna run into and we're gonna watch what he does as he encounters the same kind of questions we ask when we have a culture that's not in line 
with what we know to be following Jesus. So the questions I have written, I have in my own thinking as I go through this is like, how do you stand for your faith in a place like Babylon, in a place like Grants Pass, a place like America, how do you stand for your faith without being weird, right? Because Daniel's never weird. You're never like, dude, you are weird. But he stands for his faith over and over. How do you respond to people that will say this to you or to me that Christianity is unloving? Like, how do you answer that to people? And they'll point out certain groups or whatever it is. Like, how do you answer that? Um, How does Jesus apply to very different kinds of people? A different culture, a different lifestyle, a different orientation, different politics. How does Jesus apply in very different circumstances? Because that's where Daniel ends up, right? If I stand for Jesus, what will people think of me? At my workplace or in my classroom or with my peer group, if I decide to stand for Jesus, like Daniel does over and over and over, what are people gonna think about me? If I put a little sticker on the back of my truck and I go to the construction site, what are people gonna think of me, right? And the last one for me as a parent is this, how do I help my kids in Babylon today? Because there is a culture that wants to press them into a certain image and wants to say, this is the thing, this is the way to live, this is how you wanna live, this is what you wanna do. How do I help my kids? How do I give them a worldview that allows them to evaluate what culture is telling them and to see if it's lying to them or not. So how do I do that as a parent? And these are all the things that are just mixed in this book. Because you take a 14-year-old boy, it's probably his age, lived in the outskirts of the kingdom of Babylon. He's on the edge. It's podunk. It's Jerusalem. It's nothing now, right? It's been just demolished. It's a podunk little town. That's all it is. And then he is ripped out of Jerusalem and he's carted across the desert 500 miles and he ends up in Babylon. He's a foreigner in this crazy place. And it's hard for me to like explain what that would be like for him. And this is the best definition I could come up with. This is the best analogy. So I lived in a country called Vanuatu for about a year. And the UN says the islands of Vanuatu are part of the least developed nations in the world. So they are as low as you get. So I lived there. I lived in a grass hut with bamboo walls, no running water, no electricity. You know, we had a bucket that you would drop into a hole and get your water from. I'd filter it and drink it. You'd bathe in it. Live 20 feet from the ocean. So just primitive, primitive, primitive living. And all the students that came to the school I taught at there were from the islands. And they have the perspective of an island. Like when, we, when they think about the United States, they just think it's an island because that's the only perspective they have. So I get there and you start learning the students, you're talking to them. And they asked me this one time, they said, hey, what's Michael Jordan like? I'm like, I don't know. It's like, you mean you don't hang out with Michael Jordan? I'm like, no, I don't hang out. Do you know Michael Jordan? I don't know Michael Jordan. Like, why not? Because they're from an island. You know everybody on your island. That's just the way it is. So they assume like in America, we're just hanging out with the celebrities and Michael Jordan and whoever, because that's their perspective. So imagine you take a guy, they're called knee vans from that culture, and you take him out of this no running water, no electricity, 20 feet from the ocean, and you just transport him into New York City, Times Square. Okay, that's about what happens to Daniel, right? He comes from Podunk, Jerusalem. It's a nothing place. And as he's going, he sees these walls 80 feet tall, 30 to 65 feet wide. There's a moat that goes around this entire city, the city of Babylon. They had diverted the river. The river ran through the city because Nebuchadnezzar built these things called the hanging gardens because his wife was from the country and she didn't like the concrete jungle. So we tried to change it. It became one of the wonders of the world. So you have this podunk kid drug across the entire desert and all of a sudden he ends up in New York, LA, Paris, Santa Barbara, Honolulu, all those things smashed together. A guy that just lost his home, 
lost his parents, lost his culture, lost everything. And now he goes there. And everything is gonna be offered to Daniel. Daniel, here's the key to the city. You can have it. If you're 14, how would you do? If you have a child that's 14, how would they do? Right, that's an immense amount of pressure. And here's what Daniel says, no thanks, I choose God. And he does that over and over and over again. And his book stretches from 605 BC to 537 BC. That's how long he is in power in Babylon. He goes through two different empires. First, the Babylonians, second, the Medo-Persians. That he is so good that when the new crew comes in and defeats Babylon, they say, we'll keep you. Dude, you're smart. Hang with us, help us. That's how good he is. He goes through eight different kings and is always a man who's in power. Because when you choose God, you'll never regret it. So how does Daniel do this, right? That's what we're here to find out. The big question on the book of Daniel, if you read commentaries is, when was Daniel written? And the date that people like, the scholars, or you could call them the critics of scripture, they say Daniel was written in 150 BC. Now, can you guess why they would want to date Daniel at 150 BC? Because it predicts a bunch of stuff. And it predicts it so well that they say it would be impossible for Daniel to have predicted this. He must've been writing looking back because he predicts the Medo-Persians, he predicts Alexander the Great, he predicts Rome, he predicts what Antiochus Epiphanes would do in 165 BC when he trashed the temple, slaughtered a pig in there and forced the priest to drink its blood. It's called the abomination of desolation. So there's no way he could have predicted that. He must have written the book. Some Daniel type person must have written the book in 150 BC. And the main way that they redate the book of Daniel is he uses a handful of Greek words. And so their thinking is this, Greek was not the main language. It would become the main language of the world after Alexander the Great. It wasn't the main language yet. So that must mean that Daniel's use of Greek means he wrote it in 150 BC. The problem with that though, is we found other documents that date behind 500 BC, that era that also use Greek words because the Greeks were traitors at this point. They had outposts by the seventh century along the Palestine coast in Israel. They were already around, right? So Daniel would have grown up in Jerusalem, knowing Greek people, trading with Greek people. You know, the Jerusalem is on the crossroads of, of both Asia, Middle East, Europe, and Africa. So it's a crossroads. So that doesn't hold any water anymore. So they still hold to it though, because of the predictive power of this book. But in this book, there are these uh, very, very interesting coincidences that make it seem like maybe it was written a lot earlier. I'll give you just a couple of them. Number one is this. Um, in chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar makes an image says, everyone needs to bow down to this image. Who doesn't bow down? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? No, we're not doing that. All right, you know the whole story. So what is his threat to these three boys that won't bow down? Fiery furnace. So the Babylonians were known to punish people by burning them. They were known to do that, All right? So fast forward to chapter six. Whole new empire now, Medo-Persians are in. Darius is the king. He has this crazy thing that happens. He's tricked into saying, hey, no one can pray. Daniel says, I I'm still praying to my God. Prays three times, doesn't do it in a secret. People see him, they turn him in. And so Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. Now, why is it a different punishment? The Medo-Persians, fire to them was sacred. You would never use fire to do something wrong to somebody like burn them. And so the Medo-Persians punished by throwing you to the lions. So how would a guy 400 years after this stuff, how would he know that? No Google, 
No Encyclopedia Britannica. He's got no books. How does he know that? It'd be like a guy in Vanuatu knowing that. How does he know that? Probably because he lived it and he wrote it, right? That, that's one real hard proof to me. The other one is this. In chapter five, there's this new king called Belteshazzar. And Belteshazzar is uh, a guy who's partying away. Hen comes out of nowhere, writes on the wall, tekel, tekel, mini you farsin, right? You guys know the story. He sees that hand. He's so freaked out by it that he goes to the bathroom on himself. Calls in all his dudes. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? No one can interpret it. Daniel's brought in. And he says to Daniel, if you can interpret this, I will make you third in command in my kingdom. Why not second in command? Why third in command? I don't know. Third in command. Daniel interprets it, is made third in command. Okay, so up until just about 125 years ago, the scholars said there was never a man named Belteshazzar. Daniel's the only reference to it. He didn't exist. Uh-oh, guess what we found now? We found these uh, clay, where they just make a clay and they, they'd scratch into them where Belteshazzar's on it from this time period. Okay, does it exist? And guess what? He wasn't number one. He was a co-king with his father who would go out and do the wars and Belteshazzar would stay at home and party, right? So when Belteshazzar says, I'm not gonna make you number two because that's me, I'm gonna make you number three. It completely fits in to the narrative that happened 540 or 400 plus years before they said this book was written. So how would Daniel writing in 150 BC know about all that without Google? without Encyclopedia Britannica, just him by himself. He probably doesn't. And then the third one, and there's a bunch of them. Daniel uses some Persian words and they break Persia, the language into um, very primitive Persian, old Persian, middle Persian, and then late Persian. Guess what Persian words he uses? Old, like from 500 BC. That's the words he used. In fact, when the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible was finished in 130 BC, they tried to translate Daniel and they couldn't. They just butchered it because the words that are used in Daniel, they don't know what they mean. They just took a stab at it based on context. Now, if Daniel was written in just 150 BC using Persian words, you would think people would know what they were if it's just 20 years later when they finished the Septuagint, but they don't because it was not written in 150 BC. It was written somewhere 530, 540 BC. That's when it was written. And guess who wrote it? Daniel wrote it. And to me, the burden of proof is on them to prove it's not, and they can't. It's because they have a worldview that says the Bible is not divine. So in order for the Bible not to be divine, guess what it can't do? It can't predict the future. But there's a prediction in the Bible that no matter when you date the Bible or the book of Daniel, it predicts the day Jesus will walk into Jerusalem declaring himself as king, which no one can debate. No matter when you date Daniel, he gets that one perfect. So I'd say it's written 540 BC and it's written by this guy named Daniel. Brilliant. So we'll jump into it. Get chapter one down. Most of you know this chapter. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. These vessels are gonna appear again. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels and the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. 
Among these, so there's more than just these four, was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. So there's a theme that immediately in the starting gates of Daniel is put out to us. And this theme is in verses one and two. So verse one says this, Nebuchadnezzar came, besieged Jerusalem, right? And what that means is this, in the ancient world, when you went to battle with another country, it was more than just a physical battle. Your God came with you. So what was being said in verse one is this, Nebuchadnezzar and his God Marduk beat Jehoiakim and his God Yahweh. That's verse one. So that's the physical way of looking at it from a sixth century BC viewpoint. My God beat your God. That's why he takes the vessels like as a trophy and where does he put them? The house of his gods, just a collection of trophies. Look at all these gods I've beaten. Look at all the gods that Marduk, my God has taken, right? But then verse two says this, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. That's the other side. So if you read the rest of the Bible, you know this. Israel had rebelled against God, the 10 northern tribes, and God had given them away in 722 BC to the Assyrians. Judah, they never, you know that Israel never had once got one godly king. I mean, that's crazy. Not one godly king. Judah had some godly kings in it. Hezekiah, Josiah. So God protected Jerusalem for a long time from the Assyrians who had just wiped out their 10 Northern brothers. God said, not, not gonna happen to them. Protected them, protected them, protected them till this dude named Manasseh comes. And Manasseh did this. He sacrificed his children to Moloch. And God said, that's it. I'm done. You want idols? Fine. I'm gonna give you idols. I'm gonna send you to the land that invented idols the evil empire. And you can go there and enjoy all the idols you want, right? Maybe it's like this. Um, when I was about seven or eight years old, I lived at 717 8th Street, right by the high school. The house is no longer there. So there was an alley behind our house. One of my little buddies found this can of chew. And so, at, you know, as a seven-year-old, like you're curious, right? So each of us tried it. Just, it was Made my head spin, I remember that. Got sick, went in, went, took a nap. The little boy that found it, closed it up, put it back in his pocket and went home with it. Guess what his dad found? Can of chew. Guess what his dad did? He could chew the whole thing, right? Kid puked, never chewed again in his life. I think sometimes that's what God did. Oh, you want that? Okay, I'm gonna give it to you till you puke on it to show you that's not the answer. So I think that's what God does with Judah. You want idols? Okay, I'm gonna send you to the epicenter of idolatry, right? But the point Daniel's making is this. You can look at the world through a lens of humanistic view where everything just happens naturally, but you're gonna miss something because God actually uses empires like Legos. And that's what Daniel is gonna show prophetically, chapter seven. He's gonna show God uses them like Legos to accomplish what he wants. And maybe the best example of this is Luke chapter two, where it says this, that Caesar Augustus made a decree that everyone should be taxed. So you had to go back to your hometown to be taxed. So in the natural world, oh, hey, it's a guy trying to make some money, right? I wanna raise some money, everybody go home, I'm gonna tax you. But really what was happening behind the scenes? Jesus, who was in Mary's belly, up in Nazareth, needed to be born down in Bethlehem. So God moved Caesar Augustus to make this edict to tax everybody. So Mary and Joseph have to travel down to Bethlehem at just the right time. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem in the city of David, right? But Matt, taxes are evil. I know they are. <laughs> God uses what he hates to get what he wants. 
God uses empires, bad empires like Babylon, like Rome to get what he wants. And so I have a verse that's highlighted in my mind because there's always gonna be something or someone that you just don't agree with. Empires come and go, right? Just our voting in every four years, an empire comes and goes in our country. At least every eight years, an empire comes and goes, right? And you can be like so mad at it, like Nancy Pelosi got her job back. Or Trump, I can't believe him, right? I don't do that. I say Colossians or excuse me, Ephesians 1.10, that God is working everything after the counsel of his will. That we may not be able to see it. We may think, oh my goodness, Marduk and Nebuchadnezzar won. God's saying, no, I'm working things after the counsel of my will. I'll lift one up and I'll set one down because I have the end game in mind. I have a goal for all of this and I'm gonna weave it together into a beautiful story of redemption. That's what I trust, right? So people would tell me, man, Matt, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I say, I know, I watch the news too. But here's the good news. Here's the hope of Daniel. God's on the throne. And it might feel like you're an evil Babylon. God's still on the throne. And these things don't surprise him. He's able to work it all after the counsel of his will. That's the hope of Daniel. And it's brilliant. And it's a theme right in the starting gate, verses one and verses two. So Sunday, we looked a little bit at how Babylon tries to Babylonize these guys. And notice just some things real quick. Number one, notice this. He chooses young people. Youth, verse four, without blemish. Why would Nebuchadnezzar want young people? Well, number one, you don't want to train a 90-year-old in a three-year-old school because he may die before he graduates, right? You're not going to get a lot of life out of that. So youth, if you train them right, you get a long life out of them, most likely, right? But also, young people are pliable. And scientists found this, that events that happen to you from the age of 14 to about 22 are super impacting on you. It's like this, it's like the cement dries in those years. If it happens before that, you can kind of wipe it out and start over a lot of ways. But from 14 to 22, like it's massively impacting to a, the way a person thinks for the rest of their life, the cement dries there, right? So there's this book I'm reading right now. Actually, I'm done with it. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. Anyone read that? Whew, man, it's fascinating, fascinating book. Uh, written by a Virginia professor, uh, John Haight is his name. Brilliant, just brilliant book. Um, but he, 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 they, they give this example that was fascinating. They say, if you go back to 1981 and before, white people predominantly vote Republican. Like it's just, that's the way it is except for one little group, the group of people that are born from 1950 to 1954. It's like this spot of, of blue, right? In a sea of red. And they're like, why is that? Well, because when they were in that 14 to 22 range, guess what was happening in our country? Vietnam, Martin Luther King getting assassinated, right? Kent State, uh, just Black Panthers, just this craziness, the, the hippie movement, all that. And because of that, people born in that tend toward a very um, democratic viewpoint because when they were sealed, when the cement dried, there was events that pushed them in that direction. And he gives much more examples. So I think they knew this. Nebuchadnezzar knew this. Okay, we gotta make sure that we're gonna get the people at the right age to keep them so that the cement dries and we get them the way that we want. As a parent, man, that to me is really important. So I'm gonna be looking at that age group, especially in my kids and trying to say, be careful what my kids are into because this is when the cement dries. Make sure that I am filling them up with God's word and God's ways and a worldview that takes into, into not just the natural perspective, but also God's perspective, right? So young, number two, they're kind of flattered right? You guys are without blemish, good appearance, skillful, smart, right? These are the Briggs-Meyer IQ of 150. These are the Mensa students. These are good-looking guys. Do looks get attention, right? 
We don't have to be politically correct here. They get attention. Tall people make more money than short people. Do you know that? It's true. Every study, tall people make more money than short people. They have a term for it now. It's called being shortchanged. (laughs) It's so good. I'm I'm not making this up. I mean, (laughs) I'm just the messenger right now. There's this study on the University of Texas, which is this massive university on professors. And the professors are all ranked uh, by people on how they looked. The most attractive professors got all the promotions, whether they deserved them or not. It's just, that's the facts of life, right? So these boys are flattered. You guys are the best looking. Look out. Does it work? Totally. Flattery works. I have a saying. Flattery is like cologne. It's okay to smell it but don't drink it, it'll kill you, right? So they flatter them, they butter them up because they want them to fall into line with them. You guys are the best, you're the cream of the crop, you're the best looking, you got the highest IQs, come in. Then number three, they're given, verse five, a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. Think it was good? Nebuchadnezzar's not eating trash. He's got the best food you could imagine. And what they're being told is this. If you play your cards right, Daniel, you'll eat this food for the rest of your life. You will be set up, fall into line. As a Christian, living in what I think is Babylon, we have to recognize that. Babylon puts on a spread for young people. Babylon puts on a spread for a 14-year-old, right? And when they look at Christianity, they look at the church, it looks like veggies in comparison. Like we have to just admit that. I think the Bible's really honest about those things, right? People say the Bible is written to to manipulate people. I say, really? Why is Job in the Bible then? Why would you include this book about a man who's righteous and loses everything? His kids, his houses, his flocks, his finances, gets a disease, sits on a pile of ashes and rubble and gets these miserable friends that come over and taunt him, right? Believe in Jesus, be like Job. That's stupid. The Bible's just honest though. Honest about life. I think we should too, right? Man, it might look like the church, Christianity is putting on veggies and, and Babylon has a 4th of July spread. But know this, you eat at the king's table, it's pleasurable for a season, but the end is clogged arteries and a heart attack. Man, sin looks pleasurable, totally. But there's always a price to pay for that meal that you eat. You'll pay, you'll pay, you'll pay. So I think just be honest, they do, it does, it does. Then number four, they're isolated. They're ripped from their home. They're ripped from their parents. They've got these godly names, right? These names that tell them their heritage. Like today, how do we choose names today? Like Google, there it is. Someone just said it. You Google, like, you know, most popular names. Does it sound right with my last name? Does it, right? That's how we do it. They didn't do it that way back in Daniel's time. They named their kids after the attributes of God. So Daniel's name is literally, God's my judge. So every time he introduces himself, hey, what's your name? Guess what he says? God's my judge. You think that over and over and over would begin to affect him? Oh, totally. It's just a reminder. Man, God's your judge, Daniel. Don't live for people, live for him. He's what it's about, right? So he's, his name is, he's isolated from that name. They don't want him that name anymore. And he's made a eunuch, Right? 90%, there's a 90% possibility that he's made a eunuch. There's a ch- slight, slight, minute people that say, yeah, maybe he wasn't, right? You, you, didn't, you didn't let stallions around your girls, right? So Nebuchadnezzar, smart dude. Daniel never marries, never have kids. Yeah, he's made a eunuch. So now he's isolated that way. Like, listen, you're never gonna have a normal life. You're never gonna go out there and have kids. You're never gonna get married, fall into line with what we want because you're not gonna work anywhere else. You're damaged goods now. 
Just do what we're telling you to do. Fall in line. Isolates. Gets them there. Same thing the enemy does today. The enemy will want to come in at some point, usually when you're young, and wound you in such a way that you feel like I don't fit in anymore. Right? These words that then just, they, they capture you at 14, 15, bullying. Someone says you're fat, someone says you're ugly, someone says you're stupid, someone says you're no good, and it cements you. And you feel like you never get over it. That's what's happening to Daniel right here, right? So bad. And we gotta be careful because right now, like words are changing. Do you know that? Like, like the very vocabulary of America is changing. I actually grabbed a couple slides just, and, and I used this maybe three years ago. Do we have those? Okay, look at this. So here's what this is. Right at the top there is called an Ngram viewer. You can go to this in Google. You put in any words you want and it goes back to the 1800s and tells you how frequently that word is used. How cool is that? Like just, it's, it's really telling you what are the words that we use today? So this one right here is virtue. Right? You used a lot in 1800. How much is it being used now? How much, right? Next one. Godliness, right? Had a couple peaks there. And now how much is it being used? Oh, you just don't use that word anymore. Okay, next one. Gratitude, right? You used a lot. Like it was something that marked us. Be grateful. People wrote about it. It was in our vocabulary. Yeah, not much anymore. Next one. Bravery right? Shink. Just a con. We don't use it anymore. Next one. Self. Look at that. <laughs> Woo! Next one. Self-esteem, right? Flatline forever. And then what happens? Shing. It's all about self-esteem. Listen, we have a changing vocabulary. And I think as parents, we need to reverse that. We need to be telling our kids the words that actually matter bravery, virtue, godliness. Like don't, don't, don't believe all these other things. Believe these words. These are powerful words, right? So, and then fifthly, he's got a boss, this guy named Ashpenaz. And this boss is his mentor. This is the guy that tells him what to do, when to wake up. It is the guy that's telling him, here's how you succeed in Babylon. Be careful who you let your kids around. Be careful. Well, I am. Are you sure? Because now we have these, I don't even want to call them, like these micro celebrities, right? That, are, that, that kids tune into on YouTube or whatever, Twitter, and they're just, they just feed themselves on the worldview of this micro person. And it's like this. I was talking to somebody. I said, it's like this. Would you go to the mall and find some random dude, pick him up and take him to your kid's room and put him in your kid's room for six hours a day? No, that'd be crazy. That's what we're doing right now. On their devices, listening to this person, you know, just telling them this is, what it's essentially their boss. And they start parroting the same things they do and start talking the same way they talk. Be very careful. Be very careful. We have a, uh, a Babylonized system like never before in history where just these bosses can just be channeled in to your kids' rooms. Be so careful. So, verse eight, but, oh, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs, this is Ashpenaz, to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king. We'll see why you should fear Nebuchadnezzar, who assigned you food in your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths. 
Uh, fat in the Bible is always looked on positively, which is a great attribute of the Bible, isn't it? <laughs> and then all the youths who ate the king's food. So the stewards took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them veggies. Oh, you just gotta know those other guys hated Daniel and the boys like, ah, man. All right, so here's the big issue. Like the test to me is super bad because eating only veggies is such a sad way to live. So I struggle with that part. Um, uh, Verse eight though begins with what word? But, you ever had a conversation with somebody who's telling you, hey, you're so good. Hey, I really like this about you. And man, I really love this. But, what does that tell you? This is what they actually wanted to say. Here's their point. They were just, you know, doing the normal stuff, flattery, butter you up. But tells you, here's why I really am meeting with you. That's what this but does right here. All right, here's just some details of what's happening. But here's the point. Here's the point. Daniel resolved. Daniel, that's the whole point of this chapter, but, right? I'll listen to your education, no problem. I'll take on your name because it does not define me. I'll get your haircut, I'll dress like you, I'll live here, I'll learn a new language. I'm okay with all those things. But then there's a line in the sand. Shh, nope, I won't cross that line. I won't defile myself. I'm resolving right now not to defile myself. We all need lines in the sand. I think sometimes Christians though, they put the wrong line in the sand for their kids, right? Like don't read Harry Potter. Really? Are you afraid your kids are gonna grow up to be wizards? Has any kid read Harry Potter and grown up to be a wizard yet? Haven't seen it. So I think sometimes we, we make all these lines in the sands for our kids, we, we make a new Torah for them and they're like, ah, I can't stand all this. When we ignore like the really, really important things that you should say, hey, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. Yes, 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 no. And then when you say no on that, your kids know, oh, that must be really important. But if you say no all the time, what is it? It's white noise. Men say yes to your kids as much as possible so that when you say the no, it matters. Daniel said yes to a bunch of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, nope, not that one. That's too far. Choose your battles. I watched this <clears throat> TED talk by the guy, the, the psychologist who did the Stanford experiments. You guys know those? <clears throat> it doesn't matter. It's called the demise of men. I'm like, I've got to watch that because here's what you know. Boys are falling behind. High school graduation rates, they're behind girls. Um, like whoever, you know, top GPA, salutatorian, whatever it is, valedictorian. It's 70, 75% of girls now, right? High school, um, college diplomas, way behind girls now. Post-grad, way behind. Like, every, like what's happening to boys? So I'm like, let's read, let's, let's do this. Let's tell me what this is. This guy's super smart, been around for a long time. Why are boys falling behind, right? So I watch it, you can watch it. And uh, it's Philip Zimbardo, I think his name is. And this is what he said. Excessive video games and pornography. I'm like, that's anticlimactic. There's the lines. They just drew them. You wanna draw a line in the sand? That's the lines you draw for boys. Excessive video games and porn. Look out for those. And this, I think the TED Talk was done before pot. So now it's like a trifecta. Playing games, porn, and pot. And you wanna take out young men, there's your three. Just crippling, crippling boys. And porn, he even said this in his, no, it was another, another video I read. Um, porn is like no other addiction. Normally an addiction is, I need more of the same thing. Porn is, uh-uh, it's called an arousal addiction and it requires different stuff all the time. So it just goes off, the, it goes into just catastrophically weird junk. And it's so dangerous to kids, right? There's, there's the lines in your sand. You wanna protect your kids from something, that's it. That's bad. Protect them from porn, playing too much games, and from pot. Three sour peas. Beware of those. And Daniel, we're gonna watch and see how he navigates through this stuff. So I'm always in Daniel asking the question, how do I get my kids to have this kind of resolve? Where they know this stuff is damaging and it's destructive and I'm staying away from it, right? And I love what Daniel does here. 
how he asks and who he asks, right? He asked the top dude first, right? Ashpenaz, hey, bro, mind if I don't eat this? Hey, my head's gonna go, sorry, you're eating it, right? He doesn't give up, doesn't get mad at him, doesn't rebuke him, doesn't get a placard and start marching around, you know, defiling food and he doesn't do any of that. What does he do? Goes to the next in command. Hey, you're the guy that's over me. What do you think about this? I think this is the first blind test in history. Let's do this blind test. Take me and my four, three buddies versus everybody else and let's watch and see what happens. It's kind. Daniel never gets angry no matter what happens to him. Daniel never goes out and rebukes people. Daniel never gets a, uh, a group together and starts to protest. He doesn't do that. He always works within the system in a kind way. And he has favor with people because he's kind, right? Twice it says he got favor, he got favor because he's a kind guy that doesn't push his thing, that doesn't force his thing, doesn't argue, isn't weird, is just a good, solid person. Goes through the chain of command, does that. I love that. So then we'll finish quickly. As for these four use, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of this time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs, brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians. They're the best wizards. (laughs) and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. I love this. These boys would be wondering, has God grown tired of us? Right? We had our place. We were in our city. We're in Jerusalem. We've got godly names. All this bad stuff happened to us. Where's God? Has he cast us off? Uh, Will he meet us in Babylon, right? We're in the evil empire. Will God meet us in Babylon, this bad spot? You ever felt that way? And guess what God does? He met him there. He met him there. Just like Ezekiel in chapter one, God meets Ezekiel there in chapter one. Just like in Genesis 28, when Jacob has lied and deceived his dad and his brother, God meets him there in Genesis 28. Just like Moses, when he's running for his life, a murderer on the backside of the desert, what does God do? God meets him there. Man, God is the pursuing God. He comes after us, even in bad spots like Babylon and gives us favor and power, right? They're the top of their class. They're summa cum laude. They're, they're the best. They're 10 times better. And I don't think it's because God like magically gave them the ability. I think they applied themselves. And yes, God helped them, but they also worked and studied, right? So here's what I say in this chapter. They resolved and God got involved. That's the pattern you see. Daniel resolved, verse eight, verse 17, God got involved, gave them learning and skill. Like there's always this debate. Is it God's sovereignty or is it human's responsibility? I say it's both. There are two pedals on a bicycle that, that, that without both of them, without me saying, God, you put this in my heart, I'm resolving, nothing happens. That it's obedience to what I know to be right. Daniel knew this stuff is wrong. This food has been sacrificed to idols. This food has been dedicated to Marduk. I'm not gonna eat it. I'm not eating that kind of food. It will defile me. And he made a resolution and God got involved. And we know from Daniel, he reads the Bible because he quotes from Jeremiah. And from Daniel six, he prays three times a day, right? He made resolutions and God got involved. He saturates himself in the big story of the Bible, reading, saturating in the story and he becomes one of the authors. It's the same thing we're supposed to do today. The New Testament says we're to be living epistles. That when we saturate ourselves in this book, it shapes us 
the way we think, the way we respond to people, it shapes us. And we begin to author the next chapters, Acts 29, Acts 30. We become living epistles. That's what Daniel does. When you resolve, God, I'm not gonna defile myself in Babylon. God will empower that. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, 2 Chronicles 16, 32. The eyes of God go to and fro throughout the whole earth, searching for someone that he can show himself strong on their behalf. Excuse me, 2 Chronicles 16, 9. Now I'm really doubting it. One of my favorite verses, yeah. <laughs> Age, you can look it up. <laughs> he found one in Daniel. God's looking for men and women in whatever Babylon you're in to say, God, show up. Show yourself strong on my behalf. And he does it right here. And so Father, this day, we're grateful for Daniel. We're grateful for the path he blazed, the shining light that he is. And we're even more grateful that the God of Daniel is the God we serve. That you are able to do the same things. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I pray for each one of us in here right now, Lord, whatever Babylon we might feel like we're in that's trying to crush us and take us and push us in directions that we know are not right. I pray that by your spirit right now, we would draw a line in the sand. We would resolve to not be defiled by Babylon. And then we pray that you would be involved that you would turn the hands, you would keep us from evil, you would change our situation, you would make us stronger in that situation so we're not defiled. And that we could shine brightly like Daniel. We could be authoring the next chapters of your kingdom here in Grant's Pass. So fill and empower us with your spirit. And we pray this in your name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.